Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Artifications Podcast. This is Roland Ramos. I'm excited. Today, we're actually going to be talking about something that I'm currently working on. This is Charleston, South Carolina. This coastal city is beautiful and instantly recognizable when you are confronted with the specific architecture of South Carolina. The heat and humidity are one of the defining characteristics of the region and also going a long way to influence a lot of its history. Speaking of history, you can do your part to make sure that Artifications does not fade away into history by supporting our Patreon page. You can find it in our show notes, and we have many different little packages set up for you at whatever level you'd like to support. And by the way, thank you to the Patreon members who have been with me for the past four years. You guys are amazing. That's some historical support. And now, for some further historical support, we're going to talk a little bit about Charleston as far as the history. Now, so you know what influenced the history of Charleston is that it is a, it's accessible directly to the ocean. It's not a river town. It is a port. And this port was located at the end of a peninsula. And the very end of the peninsula is located... Uh, White Point Garden, which is a beautiful park, beautiful, beautiful park, and we actually uh, explored on uh, Artifications.us. And at the end of the port, facing the opening to the Atlantic Ocean, is the Battery, a beautiful walkway that you can see all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean. And it was this access to the Atlantic Ocean that precipitated the tremendous uh, wealth that was generated in Charleston, primarily through exporting agricultural goods. These came from the multitudes of plantations that were located all throughout the uh, the really hot area that was South Carolina or the Carolinas. They were of course staffed by thousands of slaves and it was on the back of the slave economy that the tremendous wealth was generated and it's like okay why in an art show are we talking about a slave economy it's because in artifications we always take a look at the history of a location how it came to be we're not standing in judgment of the past simply acknowledging that in order to see where an economy is going one must see the trajectory of where it's come from and after having the immense privilege of exploring various international art scenes with artifications Charleston is distinct in having a large concentration of galleries hosting non-local or regional artists. Most regional galleries tend to show work in line with a clearly delineated local or regional aesthetic. That South Carolina honor goes to the bright colored art of the Gullah Geechee people, who we'll visit later. But the regional aesthetics that we're talking about, you can see them. They're represented in local galleries, uh, usually by local artists. For example, in the Northeast, you have palettes of deep green, brown, yellows, oranges, and black, celebrating the autumnal variation of colors. In the South, people are drawn to the antebellum charm of historic plantations. All we're saying is that these plantation vistas and even the celebrated downtown architecture of the city of downtown Charleston would not exist but for the slave economy that preceded it. The result is a dynamic, highly curated city full of wondrous architectural delights, a true walking city. We had the unique opportunity to interview the social media director of the Old Slave Mart Museum in downtown Charleston. 
Maya Simmons does an excellent job of breaking down and helping one visualize just how much the slave economy influenced Charleston and the region as a whole. All right, so my name is Maya Simmons. We are here at the Old Slave Mart Museum here in Charleston. And I'm just here, social media coordinator as well as uh, museum personnel. So. so we're here mainly to help educate the community, both local and people visiting into Charleston's past as a major slave port. So this was an actual slave mart. As you go through, you will be standing in the place where they would have been actually buying and selling people during the domestic slave trade. It's worth so noting about- that we're in the heart of downtown Charleston, two blocks from the waterfront. As the tourists roam around, one wouldn't know that we're actually surrounded by numerous slave auction sites. So the thing about Ryan's Mart is we were actually just an alleyway. So that was always somebody's wonderful, beautiful, opulent house. This was always here. This was a German fire station at the time. This was a nice part of the city. But that just kind of just goes to show how ingrained into the community and into life the slave trade actually was. So it just sort of depends. We were, this was the largest of about 40 slave marts. Uh, in the area, so you could have some people come in here to buy the slaves to work on the surrounding areas, or you could have them going as far out as to, you know, Arkansas and things like that into the new states. So we were, we were come, you would come to Charleston to purchase your slaves for wherever you needed them to go. The old Slave Mart Museum plays an important role in the community by reminding all who enter of the once dark past of Charleston and of legacies and stories that time may well have forgotten. Um, I think that it's a good way to kind of show that it is all connected. So things that happened back then aren't just absolutely gone and forgotten, have no effect on things today. I think one of the main things that we talk about are with the rebellions and how they transformed the conversation around slavery in Charleston. You saw the creation of one of the main colleges here in College Charles, or in Charleston, the Citadel. That started out in response to a slave rebellion and now it's a military college that doesn't even talk about it that much. You really, I mean, you have to get a good professor willing to talk about it, but a lot of people don't know that that's the history of the Citadel. They just think it's a nice military college to go to. The man known as Denmark Vesey was born in 1767 in the West Indies. He was sold into slavery as a teenager and was moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where for 19 years he would go to work as a slave until he purchased his own freedom after winning the lottery. Denmark Vesey would later co-found the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and would be arrested and put to death later after a plan for a slave revolt came to light that implicated the church. It was slated for July 14, 1822, Bastille Day. the Denmark VC revolt, uh, they wanted to make sure that if there was another slave revolt, they would have military-level military people on hand, so they created the Citadel. And now it's a now it's a college. And if you want to see the original, we do actually still have the original. If as you go up to Marion Square, it's in Embassy Suites now. And I think that is just Charleston in a nutshell. It's a big pink looking castle that used to be the Citadel. Wait a minute. How is this all connected to the art scene? I think in terms of art, probably the best place to look uh, if you've been to the market yet are with those sweet grass baskets. They are beautiful pieces of art, and they are directly connected to slavery with the Gullah people and the Gullah Geechee people, because that traces back to Africa. I told you we would come back around to talk about the Gullah Geechee community, and I'm so thankful that Miss Simmons was here to talk about it as well. By the way, these baskets that she's talking about are a very South Carolina thing. 
They're woven from a type of coastal marsh grass, then, then they were used to winnow grain. And the tradition of weaving these baskets came with the newly arrived West African slaves to the South Carolina coastal communities. Yeah, so the Gullah, those would have been um, enslaved people, most often here in Charleston would have been on the sea islands, and so they're very isolated. So they're not having that constant white oversight saying, no, don't speak your language. No, don't practice those religions. They're out on these islands where either the white slave owners are wanting to be here on Charleston proper for the social seasons, or it's too hot, so they want to go to their estates further up. So they're left with one or two overseers that don't care if they're speaking their language, don't care what they're practicing as long as they're meeting their quotas. So they're able to preserve a lot more of that African culture and African history within their own culture. So it's, it's very much a mix of American and African and even some other influences throughout. Charleston's always sort of had this air of a wonderful place to visit. That's actually one of the reasons that they moved the slave trade off the streets. It was deterring tourism. You've got people coming and seeing these families ripped apart. Um, but when you look at that time, that's when we start seeing that rise of that whole Southern hospitality narrative that we even still see today. And you have to look deeper into, well, what was causing that? Who was, who was making the food for that Southern hospitality? Who was freeing up the owners enough time to be great hostesses by not letting them have to clean the house? The slaves. It all traces back to slavery, and they wanted to still spin that and cover up that with this beautiful Southern genteel image. And so it's always been a part of it. This genteel image of the South feeds the local narrative that Charleston is a great place to visit. It really is, though. You'd be hard-pressed to find such charming evening strolls under lamp-lit streets mixed with the sound of lapping waves. I've heard someone refer to Charleston as prep school New Orleans. And you know, it kind of fits, because much like New Orleans, Charleston has a fascinating history. Still, I failed to understand the scope of just how large the slave economy was and how the intergenerational wealth generated from it would go on to influence even the contemporary art scene of today. And yet, it does. This all began by acknowledging one simple truth, that the old Slave Mart Museum was not the only slave auction site, but one of many, many sites strewn about the region. How many slave auction sites, you might ask? I don't know, but thankfully Miss Simmons is here to provide some local perspective on how pervasive the slaving industry was in Charleston, its surrounding area. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the other marts are still uh, here. They're just boutiques, law offices, restaurants. Uh, for example, there's two right over here with this pink building. So from our records, we've realized that there would have been one on the northwest corner of Chalmers and State. So that's this court side, and then there would have been a one at Wall and Chalmers, which is this side. Um, so two in the same building right over here. So in Charleston, about half of the population was slave owning, but for just your cheapest run of the mill, can't do anything special, slave, that's about $20,000 uh, in at least 2000, 2007 money. So that, that value is even higher now. And uh, there is one panel in there that talks about one person amongst his three plantations owned over 1,800 people. So, Jesus, staggering. Yeah, most people would have only had one or two because that's what they could really afford at the time. Um, but it was sort of a status symbol because I can at least afford this one. And even further than that, you had to, you can pay outright. At least here in Charleston, you could only pay a third, maybe half in cash. And then you had to mortgage the other half. 
So again, this is getting banks involved. This is not just the enslaved and their owners. This is leaching into all aspects of life. What is your opinion on Charleston's current relationship with its uh, slaveholding past? I think Charleston has a long way to go in terms of the actual conversation surrounding slavery and their role in it. Almost half of the enslaved people that came into the United States came through the port of Charleston alone. The rest are dispersed amongst the rest of the country. Almost half came through here. And the best that we can do as far as talking about them is having one slave market now and having another museum opening up next year, maybe. It's mentioned here and there. Um, there are plenty of signs and plaques or placards and everything throughout Charleston talking about how wonderful these people were. Look at them, they were, con they were uh, government workers. They were rich people, they were planters. If you see something that says that it was a planter, that means that they were a slave owner, plantation owner. Planters, you'll see that all throughout Charleston and a lot of people don't know what that means. So I think that the general conversation around it is still, they're still afraid to have it. They're still scared to say what it really was. And so as, as, until we change that, it's not gonna really get much better than this. Huge thank you to Maya Simmons and the staff at the Old Slave Mart Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. Check it out for yourself at theoldslavemartmuseum.org. Props to everyone who interviewed with me at artifications.com. You can support Artifications by checking out our documentaries, our art resource pages, and our creative content all in the same place. That's artifications.com. If you're interested in supporting what we're doing here at Artifications, simply check our show notes for details on everything we've spoken about during this episode and a link to our Patreon page. If you like this, please share it with a friend on your preferred platform. Our goal here is simple, to make the art world just a little bit more accessible. I'm Roland Ramos, and thanks for stopping by.